know, some people, sometimes when we have preschool Sunday, they, you know, they're not used to coming to church and to a worship service, and they might be thinking like, you know, what do you guys do? And do you guys sing songs? And, um, you know, why do, we, why do we, you know, listen to this guy talk? And, and um, well, different reasons. I can't tell you all the reasons people are here who come regularly, but I can tell you the reasons that God wanted us to gather together. Part of it is to celebrate, to celebrate the goodness of, of what Christ has done in our lives. And part of it is to, to learn. It's to learn, it's to grow. And we don't learn from my words, we learn from, from the Word of God. And, and you know, my job is to try to you know, study it and understand it and present it to the people here today. And the Word of God does different things to us, depending on where we are. Now, sometimes it just... It just encourages us. Sometimes the Word of God refreshes us. Maybe it's been a really hard week or life's kind of weighing you down. And, and every time we read the Word of God, we, we, you know, we, we have hope. We have encouragement. And for some of us, it, it gives us direction. Sometimes it's just a little course altering. You know, maybe we've, we've been following Christ for a while, but for whatever reason, we've kind of gotten a little off track. And, Sunday morning helps get us back on track. But for some people, it's major, major course alteration. Maybe we've been living our lives completely for ourselves. Maybe we've been thinking that all that matters is how much can I get out of life? How happy can I be? How happy can I make my family? And that's really it, and then we die. And that's, that's great when things are going well, but sometimes things don't go the way we want. And we wonder, like, is this really what life is supposed to be about? Well, we come now to this, this new, new chapter, new, new letter that we're looking at today. And it's, you know, we've been going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And as I've been said before, I invite you to go back and, and listen to those through our, uh, through our website. You can hear all of those those messages because I think they're foundational to who we should be as a church, foundational to what the Bible says the church should be. And you might think like, well, isn't that the same thing every church says? I, I don't know. I don't go to every church. But I know a lot of what's said out there from you know, some people is very similar to what we're saying, but a lot of it isn't. A lot of it isn't about what it really means to follow Christ that it's not all about you. And one of the first battles we have to win is to realize it's not all about me. And so, I don't know. I just know that that's what God's Word has said. If we're going to be a healthy church, we need to do what Jesus called us to do. We're moving to this, this letter that was written 2,000 years ago and is written by one of Jesus' closest followers. His name is John. And, and one of the big messages that he wants to say is something that I think we need to understand today too. And that message he wants to say is that truth matters. We live in a world that says truth matters, but truth is relative. Truth is whatever you make it to be. What's true for you is great. What's true for somebody else is fine. But, you know, it's okay. One of the things that the Bible teaches us 
is that there are the most important questions, the most important questions that humanity has asked ever since humanity has had the ability to ask. Those, in, those questions, there is one truth. One truth. It's not whatever you decide it can be. But what we have to understand is that, is that truth matters. It matters, and it especially matters to those of us who say that we are followers of Christ Jesus because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth matters to followers of Jesus because our Lord and Savior is truth. That's what he said. Truth also matters as, 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 as another one of Jesus' followers who wrote a bunch of the New Testament. What he said is truth matters because if what we're believing isn't true, we should be the most pitied of all people. We're also called to be witnesses of the truth. How can you be, you know, how can you tell other people about the truth of Jesus if you don't believe that it's true? Or if you just believe it's one of many truths? If you think it's one of many truths, why bother telling anyone? And yet, the Bible tells us again and again, you're not given truth just so you can hold on to it. You're not given truth just so that your life can be better. You're given truth because it is the only hope. It's the only hope for this world. If this world keeps going down the path farther and farther away from God's truth, it's a path that leads to just one of two things. People used to say it's a path that leads to one thing. No, it's one of two things. It either leads to destruction, which most people would say, or it leads to a second thing. The second thing is that somebody has to come and enforce something force us to believe something, indoctrinate us, control us, so that we will believe something else. You might think, oh, that'll never happen. This is America. Pay attention. Pay attention to what's going on. Pay attention to what's going on in your culture. Pay attention to what's going on in your society. Understand that there's a reason that things are so rapidly changing in our society. That there's a reason that, that, that more and more there's people that are trying to, to, to take away freedoms. That's, that's problem. But here's the bigger problem. The bigger problem is that people are more and more willing to give away their freedom. We give away our freedoms for, for different things. How many people... I don't know, our church tends to skew a little bit older, so that may be a good thing in this sense. But how many people have in their, in their homes a device, at least one, maybe more than one, that's always listening to everything you say? Oh, not me. Really? What is it? Uh, what's her name? Alexis? You know when you have your phone and you talk to your phone? Your phone's listening. Your phone's listening all the time. We give up our privacy. Why? 
because it helps us find a taco stand two minutes faster. Right? Two minutes faster. Oh, I'll give up my privacy. I'll give up my freedom. That's what we do. By the way, people aren't just invading your privacy just because they're interested in you. What are they doing? They're invading your privacy. They're listening to you so that they can figure out what really kind of person you are so that they can send you advertising. They can send you messages that you then respond to. You might go, well, that's not me, Alexa. I don't follow Alexa. I don't have all that stuff in my house. I don't even have a computer. You're not immune. You think you are, but you're not. We're called to be people who, who live truth, but we're also called to be people who bring truth. Because what, what God presents to us is, this is the way. It's the only way. It's the only way that, that, that you, that we, can be united and be healthy and be good and still have our, our sense of being a person. You see, there's this thing, this law that exists. It's called the, the law of unintended consequences. You might have heard of this before, maybe not. But so many things that we do, there is unintended consequences because things are much more connected than we like to think. You might have heard of this thing that was kind of popular a few, uh, you know, a few years ago. They called it the butterfly effect. How a butterfly's wings flapping affects everything that eventually affects the whole world. That everything is connected. These unintended consequences. And what, what that re reminded us of is that just because we can't see consequences right away, and just because we don't know the connection, it doesn't mean they're not there. They are there. Now, you may live your whole life blissfully ignorant of them, and that's fine, or you may think it was some other cause. But the truth is, is that unintended consequences happen all the time because it's difficult for us to hold every variable together. I was reading about some big examples of this, and one of them was about this British governor who is the governor of parts of uh, India, back when India was, a, was part of the British Empire. And so, you know, one of the threats was cobra. So they put a, a very big bounty on, on cobras. Like, you kill a cobra, you bring it in, hey, um, you're, gonna get, you're gonna get a reward. The idea was that it would, it would lessen the number of cobras. It actually did the opposite. It increased the number of cobras. Why? Well, if I'm a cobra hunter, and I'm making money off hunting cobra, what do I want? I want more cobras. I want them to grow. As a matter of fact, if I could, I'm going to make a cobra farm and then kill them and take them to the government. Unintended consequences. One of my heroes growing up, 
uh, used to have a little, little teddy bear of him, Smokey the Bear, or Smokey Bear, I guess I should say it correctly. You guys remember Smokey Bear? What was his big saying, you guys remember? Only you can prevent forest fires, right? This campaign was, was very successful. In fact, too successful. Because at the time, they thought forest fires were bad. Preventing them is good. But what they realized later on is that every decade or so, every forest, needs a fire. And if you prevent them, something happens. And what happens is the trees start to keep flourishing and growing, choking out the sunlight. The undergrowth, which never burns in the forest fire, continues to grow, choking out the, 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 the grass and the weeds that are even lower. They're really important to the forest. So what happens? Well, first of all, you have all of this undergrowth, one layer dead, another layer that's growing, choking everything out. And then when you finally have a fire, guess what kind of fire you have? You have a mega fire because you've created all of this fuel for these forest fires. And what they knew from studying, the reason they knew this is because they would study the, the, the big trees. They would look at the rings in the big tree and they would see like, oh, there's forest fires. Every decade there's forest fires. But these big trees, as long as it was a naturally caused, kind of normal, regularly occurring forest fire, the big trees survived. But once you started the mega fires, once you created the fuel, Big trees couldn't survive. Nothing could survive. Something that we thought was good, something that actually worked, unintended consequences. I think that's kind of what's going on in our society today. We have these things that we think are good. You know, we like to be happy. We like to be entertained. We like to be individuals. We like to, to have, you know, all these things for, for ourselves. You know, we're, we're the iPad, iPhone generation. And actually, the world has become so good at promoting individualism that one of the unintended consequences is we now no longer have anything in common to hold us together. We, you know, we won. <laughs> individualism, yay. Now, why should I care about you? Why should I obey your laws? Why should I observe anything called manners or courtesy? I can't think of a reason. Not a good reason. So we have these unintended consequences. We won. Individualism reigns supreme in our land. But we have no basis for a community. Well, It'd be really terrible if we just ended right now because that's kind of depressing. But the good news is this. 2,000 years ago, in fact, more than 2,000 years ago, but what we're going to look at is from 2,000 years ago, these ancient words. 
the Bible says, oh, there's another way. There's another way. And Jesus, I mean, John is actually helping this church 2,000 years ago that's been infiltrated with these false teachers. Now, on Sunday evening and Wednesday evenings, we're doing something a little different. Sunday evening at our house, Wednesday evening here at the church, we're actually going to take some time to, to do what's more Bible study. This is a sermon. I got to kind of just move and move and, and hit the points and go. But on Sunday and Wednesday, we spend time actually studying this more. So while I don't have time to unpack it all, let me just give you some, some important points about this letter. This letter, it's, it's written by John, and John is one of the, the close followers of Jesus. But John is in this unique situation. It's, it's written about 60 years after Jesus. John is probably the only surviving person from the first generation of Christians that walked around with Jesus, knew Jesus. In fact, he's not just from that first generation. He's one of the leaders. And so, you know, he's, he's, he's revered in the church all this time. He's been someone who's been faithful for his entire life, very well could be at this point in his 70s or 80s, which at that time would have been just very long life. Life expectancy was more in the 40s. And so Christianity, like the, the first generation, you know, they've kind of died. The second generation has come along. Now we're on the third generation. And when we get into the third generation, something that has happened before is, is coming back in a different way. There's always been people who've come in to be false teachers into the church. But this time, these false teachers are not like the ones before. The ones before had been, um, you know, they had been part of the Jewish faith and most of them you know, most of the early Christians were Jewish. But as non-Jewish people became Christians, the Jewish people started asking, how Jewish do these new Christians have to be? Because Christianity is, is, comes out of Judaism. It's, it's, it's a fulfillment of Judaism. And they knew that. We don't think of it. We think of it as two completely different religions, and that's really the wrong way to think about it. They're connected. And so that was the first big false teaching they had to deal with. As we get to the end of the first century, it's something different. And what's happening at the end of the first century is these, these, these people from the, the Gentile, the non-Jewish world are becoming Christians and are, or are being attracted to the message of Jesus, but, but they don't really want to fully accept it. They, they kind of want to take the beliefs they already have and see how they kind of fit with Christianity and adapt Christianity to fit their beliefs. By the way, this isn't an old problem, this is a new problem. Most of you have done this at some level and maybe are doing it right now. You know, you, you, you've taken Christianity and you kind of make it adapt to your life, what, what you want to believe, what you feel is comfortable. Because it's not a problem that's gone away. But 2,000 years ago, these, these people were coming in and they wanted to be part of the church but they couldn't accept what the church was teaching because it went against something that they really believed. And this, this group of people was called the Gnostics. And what they really believed, they're really not Gnostics when we think about them historically, but they're early forerunners of, of Gnosticism. 
Well, one of the things that they believed was that, is that basically all of existence, there's two kinds of things. There's spiritual things, and these spiritual things are good. And then there is material things. You, your flesh, all of this, all of this is evil. And so the big problem they had was they couldn't understand how Jesus, they believed Jesus was God. They believed he was the son of God. But what they couldn't understand and they couldn't accept was how the spiritual son of God could be flesh. Couldn't understand it. And because they couldn't understand it, they had to teach something else. And they, they really couldn't accept that, that Jesus was a real human being. He was only God. Kind of the opposite problem we have today. Most people today believe that Jesus existed as a human being, but they don't believe he was God. But back then, with these people, it was opposite. They want to come in to the church and, and teach this. And you got to know this group in the church is, is mixed. There's, there's some people that are probably listening to these, these early Gnostics, and they're probably going, yeah, that's, that sounds right. And then there's others that are like totally against it, go, no, that's wrong. And then there's, there's probably a group that's kind of on the fence. We're not sure. It kind of sounds okay, but it, it's different from what we've been taught. And there were probably some people who said, it doesn't matter. Who cares? Who cares whether Jesus is the son of God, he's all God and all human, or he's part God and part human, or he's all God and not really human, or he's just human? Who really cares? It doesn't really make a difference. And so the, the, the church probably had this, this mixture of people in it. And so it's in that setting that John writes this letter. And the picture you have to have in your mind is when this letter is first received, these letters were not something that was read and passed around. These letters were something that was read out loud to the entire church. So think about it. That entire church is sitting there, and there's all different groups. Some of them are the false teachers, the ones that are teaching Jesus really wasn't, um, you know, flesh. He really wasn't human. He wasn't material. And then there's the different people, some who kind of agree, some who disagree, and then some who don't know. And some who don't frankly care because they don't really want to think about it. And it's in that setting that John, this hero of the faith, this old dude who's been through everything, remembers walking with Jesus. He writes these words. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Now at first, seems kind of innocent because he's, he seems like he's talking about a thing. Seems like he's talking about a thing. And then he says, concerning the word of life. Now he starts to talk about this thing. The life was made manifest. In other words, it was shown to us. And we have seen it and testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen 
and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. First, it seems like he's talking about a thing. But as we keep reading, he starts talking about this life. And then it's this life that was made manifest. And then it was this life that was with the Father. And all of these people would have known about, about John's gospel. And they would know he is talking about Jesus. You can imagine. The guys that are teaching something different, they're not happy. Here's this letter from this revered leader directly confronting them from the first line. Saying, if you've heard anything different, if you've heard Jesus wasn't really fleshly and material, it's wrong. John is often portrayed, if you ever see the Lord's Supper, it's thought that he was maybe a teenager, very young, like 13 to 15 um, years old, maybe even younger. But if you ever see in the pictures of the Lord's Supper, he's the one that looks like a girl. He's sitting by Jesus, and he looks like a girl. He looks very, very young. And oftentimes, that's people's picture of John, that he's kind of like, kind of soft. You know, he's a thinker, but, but he's not a fighter. Well, he starts off this letter with fighting words. We don't necessarily see it if we don't understand what, this, what the situation of this letter is, but now that we do, we should see when he says, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have touched. We've touched it. It's not, he, Jesus wasn't this kind of, kind of spiritual being. He wasn't this kind of ghostly specter. No. He's fully God. He's fully man. In every way you can think of someone being a human being, Jesus was it. Right off the bat. But what do we see? Why is he doing this? He's doing this because John understands the problem of unintended consequences. He understands the problem of getting it wrong about Jesus. About not understanding really who Jesus is. That if you get that wrong, you get everything else wrong. You see, if Jesus like we believe, like some people in our culture believe, is just a man. If Jesus is just a man, you can actually get the wrong belief to think that salvation is by just following Jesus' example. Because Jesus was a great man, perhaps a perfect man. He gave us this great teaching. So if I just follow his example, then that's good. Well, what if Jesus is not just a man, but he's fully God. You see, if Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he's doing all these things, what makes you think you can do it? Christianity, what distinguishes Christianity from every other belief system in the world is this. Christianity says right up front, this is what's necessary it is impossible. You cannot do it. You cannot do what Jesus did. That WWJD bracelet, throw it away. You can't do it. Oh, you can try, but you'll always fall short. 
You can't just follow his examples. It is impossible. And the example I like to use, because I know in my life it's impossible, I can't even get close to this. But if someone hated me, if I had an enemy hating me and trying to kill me, the last thing I would do is say, Father, forgive them. The last thing I would do. I'm not even sure it would be the last thing. It's not even on my mind. My mind is, Father, stop them. Not forgive them. And yet the Bible tells us, if we're going to really do what Jesus did, we have to love our enemies. We have to bless them. It's tough. That's why it's not by my works. It's not by me trying to follow after a human example. The fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man tells me it's impossible unless, unless somehow Jesus can do something to me to make it possible. It's the Christian message. Unfortunately, it's a Christian message that's not, that's not preached enough, that's not taught enough. It's the Christian message of that we come to Christ and then Christ does something to us. He makes us new. He gives us his spirit and he gives us the ability to love those that we could not love on our own. And not just love them, but love them perfectly. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus is eternal life. We think of eternal life. A lot of people think like, oh, you Christians believe in, oh, you're going to live forever in heaven after you die. Yeah, we believe that. But that's really not what eternal life is. Eternal life is not simply life forever. John is going to unpack this more in the letter. He's just given us the introduction here. But later on, he's going to help us understand that, that eternal life is Jesus Christ. In other words, eternal life is that, yes, it is life forever, but that's not its focus. Its focus is that it's life with Jesus. It's life with Jesus. And he tells us what the purpose is. He's saying why we need to know this, why we need to know these words of life, why we need to know who Jesus is, because two things result. One is that we can have life in community with each other. He's saying, you want to hold a society together? You want to hold a community together? Base it on the eternal life of Jesus Christ. Base it on that truth. Because it is the only truth. It is the only truth that simultaneously respects each person and respects the community. It's the only one. It's the only one that says, we'll never force you. We'll never force you. It doesn't make a difference if you are super disciplined or you feel like you're afraid or you feel coerced. That doesn't make a difference. That's not Christian community. Christian community is people who have God's spirit inside of them that is changing them 
in such a way that they can love one another in a way they could not before. It has to come from God through you rather than me forcing you, me setting up rules, me setting up a program. No. It's God doing a work in you. It's true fellowship. The one body united. But here's the word we're afraid of. And I think this is why some of us don't want to embrace eternal life. And I'm talking about Christians. A lot of Christians don't like this concept of eternal life. They don't like this concept of community. Because it's not just saying we get along. And it's not just saying that we agree with one another. It's saying that we continually strengthen our relationships with one another. We know each other more, not less. We not only care for other people, we allow other people to care for us. I think in this church, it's, it's kind of typical for us, uh, most of the other churches I've been in. There's a lot of people who have no problem helping other people. There's a lot of people who do not want to be helped. They just want to be left alone. If we're a healthy community, we should not want to be left alone. We should find joy in the community. We should find strength in the community. We should find life worth living in the community. But we've been so indoctrinated by our culture that says what's most important is that we're independent and we can stand on our own. Christianity acknowledges the independence of each person. But it says, you were not intended, you were not created to stand on your own. Not only are you called to love others, you are called in Christian community to let other people love you. It's hard. That means we gotta let people close. We gotta let people see how messy our house is. We gotta let people understand how you know scared we are sometimes. But you see, one of the things that, that we have to understand is like if we're not gonna let other people see how scared we are while we're going through a problem, what about when they go through that same problem? What do they what do they think? Oh, no one understands. No one gets it. I'm terrified, but I can't tell anybody. Because no one, especially in the church, gets it. Because they, they got everything together. It's all going well for them. When we really confront in the Bible what it means to live in community with each other, if we're honest, we don't want it. We at least don't want part of it. Oh, we like some of it, but not all of it. What we have to understand is that one of the reasons we might not want it is because we've never actually seen it. And because we've never seen it, we don't know how incredible it is. That's part of faith. Continuing that journey and just knowing we don't know what lies ahead, but God promises that it's perfect and that it's awesome and that it's good. 
we maybe don't want it because we don't really want to develop anymore in our Christian faith. Because one of the things that happens when we get closer, closer together, as, as is written in, in the book of Proverbs, it says, iron sharpens iron. So one brother sharpens another. You see, if I get to keep you at a distance, we're never going to sharpen one another. You're never going to help me. I'm never going to help you. I get to hold on to my private sin. You get to hold on to your private sin. I get to hold on to my weaknesses. You get to hold on to your weaknesses, and we're all good. That's not what the Bible is saying. Iron sharpens iron. Iron sharpens iron. Last point is simply this. Eternal life is life in community with God. That's a weird thing because we don't talk about this enough, but this is saying when, when we understand, when we receive this word of life who is Jesus Christ, what that does is it allows us actually to connect to the divine community. The Father, Son, and Spirit. Wish I could unpack that more. Come on Wednesday or Sunday if you want to hear more. But the problem is, is that is that our fellowship with God is, is, is weak and marred and sometimes blurry. And a lot of it's because we don't have that true fellowship with one another. A lot of it's because we've kind of stopped in our, in our growth and our understanding of who God is. But understand what he's saying. And understand what we're going to unpack in the rest of the letter over the next couple months. He's saying, you can have this fellowship with God. You can experience it right now. Right now. But for that to happen, something has to change. And that something is us. And if we're not willing to change, we can never become what God has called us to be. We can never be a healthy church. We can never be this healthy community that's full of life. And so the question is simply this. Do you really want eternal life? If it means eternal life in community now and forever. Do you really want to be forever with Jesus? Eh, people go, yes. You really want to be forever with God, yes. But let me ask you this question. Do you really want to spend the rest of eternity with the rest of the people in this room? If you do, then why don't we start acting like it now? Think about this. If who we are as Wildlife Baptist Church has to continue for all eternity, are you going to think that's heaven or are you going to think that's hell? You answer the question. You think about it. You see, one of the things I want us to get from this series is that the truth we really believe is not the truth we say, but it's the truth we live. The truth we live. You see, the proof that we really want eternal life is that we're at least in the process of trying to live out that truth right now. And we're not still living private Christian li Christians' lives who occasionally bump into one another on a Sunday and maybe a Monday or a Wednesday. But we really want this eternal life, which means this community. 
It's the truth. It's not simply a question of do we love Jesus or do we love God. Sure. It's a question of do we love each other? Really love each other. Not just tolerate one another. I mean, if I sent my wife a Valentine's card that says, it's been a great you know, year tolerating you. Right? You know, she's probably sent me cards like that. But I would, if I sent her a card like that, is that really say love? And yet that's what we think. Hey, thanks for staying out of my way, and I stayed out of yours. Love ya. Really? That's love? Thank you for never talking to me about anything important. Thank you for never confronting me on things that I did wrong. Is that love? It's not love. It's not love in a marriage relationship, and it's not love in the church. And I'm going to tell you, it's not the path to filling up this place. Most people in the world and most Christians do not want this kind of Christianity. They want the kind of Christianity that we already, we already know. It's just come a couple times a week, maybe once a week, you know, say hi, be nice to one another, and then go home. It's not what John's talking about. The truth we live, that's the real truth we believe. Do we love each other? Do we allow others to love us? If we're not doing these things, if we don't want these things, these are just words. They're just thoughts. They're not life-changing truth. See, what we need to understand is truth, real truth, is connected to how we live our lives. And if people are going to see the truth of Jesus Christ, they need to not just hear words about Jesus, they need to see God's truth lived out in our lives at this church. Yeah, it's hard, it's tough, it's weird, it's awkward, but it's powerful. And more importantly, it's God's plan. I didn't make this plan up, he did. I would not have made up this plan. I would have said, God, you really trust me with your holy word? Are you crazy? You know how weak I am? You know how distracted I get? You know how many times I want to give up? You really are trusting us with people looking and seeing your love and your truth in us? Really? It wouldn't be my plan. But it's his plan. Let's not just say we hold truth. Let's live truth.